welcome to Heroin City, the podcast shining a light on women in history in all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and eras. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we will be talking with Montez Marche about Anne Sancho. Anne, better known as Mrs Charles Ignatius Sancho, was the wife of the renowned 18th century African-British writer, abolitionist, shopkeeper and composer. Born in Whitechapel in September 1733, Anne's married life as a wife and mother is documented in Ignatius's letters. As part of her PhD research on the study of 18th century black women in London. Montez is using Ignatius's mention of his wife in the letters as a basis to pry out a more three-dimensional look at women of colour born and raised in London in the 18th century. Welcome to Heroin City, Montez Marche. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you because I saw you on um, the People's Piazza mm. talking about your area of study, which we'll get to. And I was like, oh, I want to speak to her. Let's get her on the show. And here you are. Yeah, here I am. It's very exciting to be here. Thank you. Amazing. Where have you come from today? Um, so I'm at my family house and it's in Essex. So I am like literally like the heart of like the Towie world, but we're just sort of like the outsiders of this little Towie world. Just so. keep one foot in, one yeah, foot out. Yeah, like we see it and we don't like participate. <laughs> <Sort> <laughs> like everyone else really on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty yeah. much. Okay, well I was an honorary Essex girl because my cousins grew up near Colchester, Brightlingsea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spent many summers there, so yeah. Convenient yeah. for London. Oh yeah, for sure. So that's sort of the beautiful thing. Like um, in lockdown, I was like really appreciative to be sort of in the suburbs and like in forests and open spaces so I could do my walks and stuff and really kind of be out of the city but still if I need to be able to get into the city quite easily. I think that is the sweet spot isn't it? Yeah. Also useful for your area of research. Yes absolutely yeah. So I'm not going to explain I want you to explain because it's going to be best coming from you. Um, Explain what you're up to for your PhD. So my PhD is looking at black women's lives in 18th century London and it's on one hand trying to think about just the population like how many women were there how many can we sort of find but then on the other hand it's also trying to think about their experiences and try to think about what it was like to be a black woman in 18th century London. So understanding their working lives, their social lives, how they interacted with the local communities, but also the influence that being in London had on their sort of constructions of identity, both in terms of gender and in terms of race, and how the little kind of communities of London, how distinct culturally they are, had an impact on the way that they integrated, the way that they acculturated to London society, but also as well, like the nuances within that. So obviously there were a lot of migrant women, but there were also women who were born here. So what did that mean in terms of ideas of blackness, ideas of femininity, and ideas of just being a Londoner as well in right. the 18th century? I love this. So I'm looking at 18th century Mayfair. You run the People's Piazza, brilliant TV show if anyone wants to see it, BBC Five Player. Definitely watch it because it's a fascinating documentary about Covent Garden through time. And you're talking about these pockets, that's exactly what it is, mm. isn't it? The 18th century was the point where London expanded. Yeah, for sure. And Mayfair came into existence in the way that we see it now. Yeah. Before that was rural, really. Yeah. It was fields. Absolutely. Like, 
so from the beginning of the century, there was about 500,000 people. By the end of the century, it was nearly a million. Mm. So we had like this exponential growth, but then also like we had the development of these new urban areas, but also these very exclusive areas like Mayfair. And we saw these sort of divides between class and wealth that made the city kind of what it is now. We definitely have the origins of the modern London. And it's what's great about doing this research is that a lot of the buildings and the streets and the structures are still here. So we can have a very visceral, engagement with this research because it's like I can just go to that parish church or I can go to that street and yeah. it's very nice and you, you can feel the hands of time reaching oh, through to for you for sure yeah like I remember the other day I was in Greenwich and one of the parish churches in Greenwich I walked past it and I was like oh my gosh I know three women who were baptized in there over the 18th century and I was like this is very cool because I feel like I'm walking their same steps and it's nice to be able to have that connection with them especially as they're women that have been so almost overlooked so under-researched so to be able to be here and be like I see you and I'm trying to understand you it's a it's a beautiful experience to have on top of sort of the academic research and the the bonus that comes with that I get it you and I think the same way you come from a theatre background am I right a bit of both so I grew up as sort of a theatre kid I did Joseph that was sort of my first exposure to the theatre world but then also my mum was hugely into theatre so she always took me took me to different shows Fringe West End so I always kept my foot in it and then when I went to university I really stepped back into like the amateur dramatic world started to see myself more as a director I loved the idea of bringing stories to life being able to do that on stage is a really kind of powerful medium so I loved getting back into that and I suppose I've just kept going with it a little bit on the side as we I say a little bit but yeah a lot yeah a lot (laughs) you'd be modest we'll get to that I think it's definitely the way I interpret my research I always see things in terms of that medium Mm. whether it's stage or whether it's screen I love the idea of critical fabulation and coming to it with that eye Mm. but founded in scholarly research so I think you have to as well when we're talking about lost or hidden voices you've got to think that way yeah in that context talk to us about your methodology and also what's your motivation what's your drive to do what you're doing my motivation stems from a sort of narcissistic point of view in the sense that I was always wondering if I was living in the 18th century what it would it be like to be me what could I achieve how could I navigate the space and this was always a question in the back of my head but then in university there were a lot of different courses that I undertook as I did a history degree and I loved the 18th century, I loved everything about it, I loved like the fashions, the politics, the development of culture, I loved it. But I didn't feel like there was that much black history in it. But at home, I had my granddad who's a huge history enthusiast, and my family who were always telling me these stories about black people in, across centuries. So I was like, it didn't make sense to me. So I kind of began this on my own, where I was trying to merge these two stories together and make sense of it in my head, because it felt like I was two different people almost. I was one person at university in the academic world, and with my family, and with the community I was someone else and so I began doing this research and introducing it into my essays at uni but then in my master's I sort of fell upon this topic of black women um, and migration because I'm a second generation migrant my family are from St Lucia in Jamaica mm-hmm. and so I was like again what is it like to be a migrant coming to London in the 18th century and from there I realized how many sources there are how many references to black women there actually are if take the next step and look I developed this sort of database and then I was like I'm sitting on this database I've written this dissertation what do I do now and I was like I'm not done I have more to draw from this and there's so many stories that were so intriguing so I was like let's see where this goes in terms of a PhD and seeing if I can really do something with this and so I'm developing more outside of it in terms of public engagement in terms of theatre and being creative with these stories but 
in terms of like the source material, I mean, I just said that like there is a lot, but that's if you're sort of looking for it and if you're really actively engaging with as many archives as possible. Because references to black women are usually very sporadic, they're very brief, they're very referential, and usually they're written by somebody else. They're written by someone who wasn't or was just observing her or someone connected to her. And so we lose that sense of voice when it's somebody else writing about a black woman and racialising her. I had to kind of look as broadly as possible in parish records, in court records, in hospital records, in newspapers particularly, and you get a lot of different kinds of references in newspapers, in family papers and wills, basically anywhere, anywhere I could find a reference. And I was thankful I could call upon people in the, in the history world to be like, help send me stuff if you know of anywhere to look and from that I sort of just collated all of those together and thought about well firstly though we understand that this this history is challenged by the fact that we don't have any well few first-hand sources from black women and secondly that the sources themselves don't say much we have to kind of navigate that difficulty but within that it's recognising that firstly these women were agents, historical agents, a lot of them of their own accord or at least had circumstances that we could sort of understand. And within that, every source that was written about a black woman was about a black woman's circumstance or a black woman's action or general agency. And so what I tried to do in terms of my methodology is look past the original writer and think about what was that woman's actions, her circumstances, her motivations, what was the result of the action or circumstance dictated in this source, and then think about what that meant in a wider social context, in a wider cultural context, and really position her within the space that she was in. So even if it's just terms of a household or a local town, even just the fact that she was in London, and think about that more broadly and how that relates to other women generally but also how it relates to other black women and thankfully because of this database I sort of have a good foundation to understand if this is a unique situation that I'm looking at or if it's something quite common and draw patterns from it so it's very much thinking beyond and I think it does relate to sort of critical fabulation because a lot of that is sort of historical imagination it's about relating questions of imagination to the archival sources and thinking about race theory beyond that and using all of that to contextualize these sources so very much my methodology employs that in certain ways and I try to reinsert black thought and black agency within these sources and try and kind of get into her mind and how she would have interacted with the world around her. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to kind of draw when you think about sources that way. Slightly differently, yeah. which is like I say, it's, it's happening, isn't it? That's yeah. the movement that's happening in the history world because it has to, otherwise yeah. these voices remain exactly quiet and silent. So yeah, Sadia Hartman, obviously, mm. huge uh, fan of what she's up to and it sounds like there's some things that you've drawn from there. Are there any other scholars that you've kind of taken the lead from and then expanded what they're doing? Oh, for sure. Marissa Fuentes is Dispossessed Lives that mm-hmm. speaks about the experiences of enslaved women in Colombia colonial Caribbean and the experiences of urban slavery as well and use it she also similarly uses this idea of geography and how enslaved black women would interact with those spaces and how the archive dictates a lot of these violences and a lot of the knowledge that we have of these women so she's amazing I'd heartily recommend her book also Jennifer Morgan basically anything that she's written she's written a couple of books recently thinking about again enslaved women in the context of early modern Atlantic world and she's thinking about one thing in her most recent book which is reckoning with slavery she thinks about black women as economic thinkers 
as women who have a social, political and economic consciousness. And because of this, they understand how to navigate because they understand the world that they're living in. And they understand the implications of actions. They understand how also within the context of slavery, they're viewed as commodities. And so they can navigate that. And it's sort of reasserting the different nuances of agency, right? Not just the fact that you're doing something, but that there's this sort of ontological essence behind everything that's happening. And so definitely would recommend those two, but also the works of Sadia Qureshi, who's also my supervisor at Birmingham, and Melissa Ono-George, who's at Oxford, Caroline Bressy as well, who looks at black women in 19th century. I would heartily recommend their works. Well, thank you. I'm making notes yeah. for future podcast episodes. <laughs> really interests me. One, I want to know the, the people that you were introduced to by your family. Mm. That's interesting. Like, who were they talking to you about? Did you follow up on any of those names or people that you heard about? A lot of the people that they told me about were people they knew when they came to Britain, people that they were growing up with in terms of like 20th century history. Okay. And so we have like Olive Morris, they have like Jessica Huntley, Eric Huntley, obviously, as well. And then like Marcus Garvey and some of the other people who was earlier than the, their arrival. I mean, this is also a time where black British history wasn't really as prominent and so there were only a few figures that they knew about so a lot about Cuyano the abolition movement that was something that they definitely wanted to encourage an education of because it was a very important context of defining the relationship black people had with Britain going forward right and even just in terms of being in Britain generally because obviously there's a lot of movement of enslaved people into Britain and out of Britain it's also as well not necessarily known individuals but the sense of community and the sense of how we or they as migrants came and clung tightly to people of St Lucian heritage people of Jamaican heritage they lived close by they had co-ops together they helped each other in terms of staining or looking after each other's children while they were working different jobs like it was a real sense of diasporic community that's moving between places and still retaining that sense of home but still integrating within Britain and raising their children to be English people right and that was a real point of emphasis for my grandparents particularly so not learning Kiwiol from um, St Lucia they were like no you don't need to learn it you'll learn English and then I think my mum sort of learned it out of defiance but it was like <laughs> it was great to think back now to this sort of journey of across generations that really speaks to I think what you're now looking mm. into yeah. which you, I said to you, you know who do you want to talk about mm. and, and obviously more than happy to do a series and I think you spoke about Jane Douglas right yeah in the documentary but you were like no do you know what can we talk about um, Sancho yeah. and I think that that speaks to that kind of upbringing that you've had yeah in wanting to find second generation different mm. kind of attitude towards their position in London and it's not talked about as much maybe yeah tell us about that I think I mean don't get me wrong Jane Douglas's story is so incredible like the Empress of Boards like to become this notable figure within Covent Garden from this fairly tragic and difficult past in Edinburgh that she sort of navigated it was an amazing story and I loved kind of being engaged with that story and being able to grow with it and really engage with it but Anne Sancho I think is someone who very much falls to the wayside in terms of focus precisely because of the fame of her husband and this sort of male focus particularly in black British history at the moment because often it's black men who have more sources that they wrote themselves or had more public interactions I was really fascinated by the fact that though Ignatius obviously was a man of letters and he was a composer and had so many different like roles and as a shopkeeper constantly when I was reading his essays I was constantly this reference back to his wife and he's always talking about Dame Sancho 
or Mrs. Sancho or he calls her the diamond in the dirt and he constantly comes back to her and even if it's just a Mrs. Sancho as well that she's always sort of threaded within that and I think that it's this lack of focus but actually it was the bedrock for a lot of Ignacio Sancho's experiences a lot of his ability to be able to write these letters and to be able to be social was his wife and his wife's management of the house his wife as his companion and friend and as this prominent feature within the letters but also outside of the letters like there's a lot of her life before and after that we can draw on I think it was really important to firstly emphasize her womanhood her motherhood her role and identity within his life but also recognize her on sort of her own standing and how she was responsible for keeping her family together and and maintaining them after her husband's death I think that's a story people can really resonate with from a lot of different points of view but it's also something that is firstly very rarely documented for black women in this period and also to go into a lot of the detail it's also quite extraordinary particularly in my case anyway when I'm comparing them to a lot of other women who I know had few references and maybe talk about their baptism or how they married someone or how they had one child or two children and had like eight or nine children that's a massive difference and she existed in this very different world in terms of being of middle class standing occupying this very different social world and this world of celebrity also as well because Ignacio Sancho the reason for his letters being published was because he was a known figure in the community and so there's a lot to that that I think I'd love to get to grips with and I think I'm only just starting even so this start has been so fascinating in terms of understanding what it would be to be a black woman in this space. It's also interesting when you talk about agency because obviously it was there it's just not written about about and in mm. context of being a possession or you know and even in this case a wife yeah which was still seen as a possession yeah. in the 18th century and in a very specific female gendered role mm. you can still see that there was agency oh for sure and it's interesting that you find out what you can from these asides or these comments mm. from the person that was her lord and master her husband yeah you know, but at the same time find where it's either hinted at or referenced Mm. directly but find those moments and then put them in a slightly different context from a different perspective so there's that but also what's interesting is that I read one of your papers where you talked about oftentimes it was the most successful black women in this era were the ones that flew under the radar Mm. so you wouldn't know about them because they purposefully flew under the radar to just be the better wife the better mother Mm. the whatever it may be and actually that gives you another level Mm. of hardness to try and get to them because you know someone like Jane Douglas made a living out of not flying under the radar so it's very interesting to then and choose the ones that are perhaps hidden in that way as well. Mm. I don't think that when Anne was working towards this, she wasn't thinking about how people were viewing her. She was like, I have something I need to do. I need to take care of my family. I need to take care of my husband. I need to make sure that we have a good life. I need to make sure that we maintain our social standing and that people respect us in the community. And so that's what she worked for. And so she wasn't necessarily interested in recording every detail of that because her priority was very clear as to her family and to her livelihood and to maintaining that. And so in a lot of ways, that invisibility comes because she's not thinking about how to make a public figure of herself. She's thinking about what is most important to her. And I think that sort of sense of focus is something that you can see throughout her life because it's not just as she just pops up here and there. There's a consistent attitude in how she presents herself, in how she works and how she's always present at the forefront of her family life, particularly. And she almost feels like a central point, particularly after her husband's death anyway, a central point of her family. And they all seem to sort of still congregate around her. And so 
this sun figure and you know the planets orbiting around her i mean that's how i like to think of her but maybe if we invent time travel it will be different i can sort of see like oh it's very different but that figure oh right it would be amazing I definitely feel like there's not the same thinking. But I think as well that sort of speaks to the society as well, right? And there's so many expectations of women in terms of these feminine identities of motherhood and being the nurturing mother and being the dutiful wife and being the ideal. And at least even if it's... I mean, it's very much represented in the letters of Ignacio Sancho because he writes in a style that emphasises his ability to be the authority of his household, to keep everything in order, but also to be completely immersed in all of these 18th century cultures of that establish him as a middle-class man. I think it's also that she would have needed that for herself in order to not just maintain herself, but give position to her children. A lot of historians have talked about how identity and position very much was rooted through the mother, particularly in terms of enslaved plantation culture but I mean there's still that sort of emphasis in different spaces where whoever the mother was also impacts who the child is seen to be and so I definitely feel like there's that consciousness that Anne has about ensuring both of herself but also for her children and because she had a lot of children so she has a lot to take care of she had her hands full so right (laughs) yeah rewind a little bit let's hear what we know about Anne Sancho's start in life yeah so Anne Sancho I believe she was born in London and she was baptized on the 26th of September 1733 in Whitechapel and she was the daughter of John Osborne and Mary Osborne. She was the oldest of three siblings and she had a younger sister called Mary and a younger brother called John, who also features later in Ignatius Sancho's letters because they write to each other. They lived in Whitechapel for a long time, but at some point after John's birth, they moved to Westminster and there Anne and Ignatius meet. They married in St Margaret's Westminster on the 17th of December 1758 and from there had eight children. The children, the oldest was Anne Alice. After that, it was Francis, or no nicknamed Fanny. And then Anne Alice, after that, Elizabeth Bruce, whose nickname was Betsy. Jonathan William, after that, Lydia. Catherine, whose nickname was Kitty. And William, who was the last child, his nickname was Billy. So all of her children. They lived in Charles Street in Westminster, uh, where they kept a shop. So Ignatius Sancho used to be the valet to the Duke of Montague. But when he started suffering health issues, he could no longer do that. So the Duke helped him purchase a shop, which he became this point of celebrity because people used to come and he used to build his social network through this shop. As well as groceries, but also sugar, tea, things like that, which is a contentious point because obviously those are the products of slavery. And so this is the economic nature of England and wider European and American world at this time was that this was an important commodity, this was a valuable commodity, this was a social commodity. And so in terms of making money within this context of 18th century Westminster, selling these products would have been important in terms of your clientele. Ignatius and Anne both worked in the shop and from there Ignatius also wrote his letters in which he featured a lot of details about Anne and his children. Then sadly Ignatius died in 1780 from complications from gout. His letters were collected and published from which Anne got £500 from 1,200 subscribers. So they were very popular. And the book went on to have another five editions, so it was very, very popular. But she continued the shop for a few years 
until later on it was found out that William and Anne went into publishing together and they became printers and booksellers. They converted the Charles Street shop into a printing shop until the early 19th century when William became the official printer to the Princess of Wales at the time, which was Charlotte Brunswick. And then they moved to a property in Musegate near Leicester Square, which is now the National Portrait Gallery. And William also published further editions of Sancho's letters alongside other things, but Anne worked alongside him. It's interesting as well because before they moved to the Musegate property, Anne maintained this position as almost a matriarch where she kind of kept things going, keeping a track of rates and, and taxes and all of that sort of stuff. That's how they maintain their living until William dies. And then from there, they call upon the generosity of past subscribers of the Royal Literary Fund to help maintain the family. And this is what Anne, some of her daughters, including Elizabeth, lived off of until all of them unfortunately died. And, and sadly, Elizabeth died in poverty. But this is Anne's life in that she has this quite incredibly long life, died at age 84, of which she had multiple roles. Like she was a shopkeeper, she was a mother, and then she became a printer and occupied different spaces as this mother to she had a lot of children and sadly also she outlived most of her children apart from Elizabeth you can just imagine the emotional toll of having so many children and losing them I mean this wasn't uncommon in this period but even so there's still that emotional connection and so yeah she has this really incredible life that is in many ways indicative of what being a black middle class woman would have been like in these spaces and being a wife and being a mother I suppose having social position and rank and the influence that has in terms of firstly how well we know her how well we are able to engage with the different details of her life but also in terms of what we can assume her activities her motivations would have been because we have a lot of context about being a middle-class woman and the only next consideration is these ideas of race and how does that impact our ideas of this family of Anne as this maternal figure and her influence I suppose as well it's quite interesting that that journey from grocers to printers mm. which is indicative mm. of the time as well and yeah. obviously the circle she was in and perhaps even the fact that mm. when he died she made that money and went hold on a minute we could do this for ourselves mm. obviously entrepreneurial how much that came from Ignatius or how much came from her or whatever you know mm. those kind of things are really interesting to look into aren't they and also agency around the growth of mm. pamphlets and press yeah around that time saw a lot of women utilize that yeah to their own benefit. I'm thinking about people like Kitty Fisher and people like that who saw an opportunity to make some money for themselves. Yeah. So agency around that's kind of interesting. Also the fact that she must have been very social, obviously Ignatius was, but in order to carry on that and keep those connections and become connected to the Royal Corps and to just keep going in that way, mm. there was obviously an ability to work the angles. Mm. There was one incident in the document that you wrote, you talked about Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, which actually the last podcast we did was about Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. Oh, actually. Really? Yeah, so we talked to Penelope Corfield about Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens and I thought that that gave us quite a vivid picture of a family going to there. So tell us a little bit about the gardens in context of their lives and what that would have meant in, in visiting them. And it's a very common thing for a middling family to do was to in particularly in terms of being seen in terms of participating in the cultures of leisure and the cultures of society so it would have been common for them to go I think at this occasion that was written in the letters they were going to a concert and they were also engaging in the revelries that would have been in the gardens as well it's a very visible place it's a place of position and so to be there as a black family as opposed to being a black servant which was also common so there would be a lot of black servants who would have gone to the gardens with their employers or enslavers 
maybe not have participated in the same way, but they may have been standing outside with the other servants or being in a different part. Being immersed in the main events of the gardens would have been a very visible position for the family to be in. But that was important because Ignatius had that celebrity and he had almost sort of earned that right to be a social butterfly and be in those spaces. And so by extension, by him being a public figure, he made his family a public figure. Going to the gardens, being in this concert, they were known. This was a very sort of outward expression of their intricate network. They would have gone to houses visiting. They would have maybe seen or made more friends in those spaces and become even more known. But with that visibility, the implication here is that they may have been exposed to abuse. And that's what the source states. It says they were looked upon, but not much abused or seen, but not much abused. And the implication there is that by being in visible spaces and being out in the world that there could have been abuse. They likely maybe experienced abuse. And that in itself was a very powerful statement to say almost so brazenly that, oh, not much abused. It wasn't like usual. We can almost gauge from that not only how Ignatius would have felt in terms of being looked upon, also not just the fact that he was a black man, but he was a black middle class man. And he was a black man with position and black man with wealth of some sort. And so that would have been a rarity. It wouldn't have been as common as, say, most of the middle class societies. I mean, it's not saying that wasn't a thing, but it obviously wasn't as prominent in terms of the black population who were mostly labouring people. It would have been something that he would have had to engage with, process, deflect often. And he talks about that as well when someone calls him an Othello. He says, I see you a hundred times. Like, you may have only engaged with me once, but I've seen you a hundred times. That is not the phrase itself. But equally, with Ignatius being the public figure that he was and making his family those public figures, Anne and the children also would have experienced that. I mean, even if Anne didn't know this from her childhood, we can now kind of rationalise that a lot of these young people, the young Sancho's, would know that people view their parents differently to other parents. And that's largely because of their race. And it's about processing that, that this is likely something that they would experience also. And not necessarily always in an abusive fashion, but always something to be looked upon as being sort of visible, even if they didn't want to be. And the contexts of abuse as well as this is something I think we can also resonate in terms of present day in that racism doesn't always manifest in a very overt way as we know it to be in America and other countries. It can be very insidious, very implicit. And so those abuses might have taken a lot of forms that we don't necessarily know about and weren't necessarily written about. Because who would have thought to write about racism? Because I wouldn't even probably recognise what the concept was at that time because, I mean, ideas of race were still emerging to begin with. We may not know exactly the details, but this implication also highlights that this was something that they went through regularly and that there was something beneath that that we can dissect, that there was some sort of discrimination or implication or impact because of their race. I suppose that's another level of challenge that Anne would have had to navigate being not only just a woman but also a middle class woman but also a middle class black woman and there's so many different interlocking challenges there that would have very much framed her identity how she wanted to perceive herself how she would have conducted herself but also how Ignatius would have presented her within his letters and making sure that there was I suppose no question of her middle class breeding and of her social position because 
because there's nothing to indicate that there was any cultural distinction between her and any other middle class woman. You took a little bit about obviously you have to take the letters when you're using them as a source mm. in context of him putting his best foot forward yeah. in society which was something very prevalent in the 18th century especially for the middle in or mm. especially in his position. So that's really interesting but within that you can see the context of what he is trying to portray yeah. to the world and actually Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens we talked about it it very much is about being seen and people writing about you and you know mm. that you're going to be written about and actually the press were always there yeah. they were always doing reviews mm. I mean that's one of the reasons why it was so successful for so long is that the guy that put it on would always invite those people and make sure mm. they had a really good, good time seat, yeah. so the other thing was interesting is that Penelope mentioned that the servants weren't allowed to wear livery it would be interesting to know how it would have been when mm. it came to the household servants because I like the idea that you didn't really know who was who that would be interesting to dig deeper into I think it's almost that there was either an implication or an expectation that black people would have been servants because of firstly the ideas of the black servant as a luxury as a symbol of sort of wealth and exoticism but also as the commonality within these circles that black people were servants that's typically where middle upper class members of society that's their primary engagement with black people was through either enslavement indentureship or employment as a servant and so I think that's also something that Anne and Ignatius would have to navigate as well is that people would automatically assume something where really there's a different story and so they had to very much wear their position on their sleeve and it had an impact in terms of presenting their conduct and how the family would be represented in printed sources or ensuring that their children were educated and ensuring that they participated in these cultures and were visiting and having people in their homes and gifting and doing all the different things that was expected of people of their class mm. because that's a very difficult image to counter when the primary representations of black people in this period deviated between either negative representations of the criminality or bestiality or inferiority or these sort of passive subservient images and then there's these weird middle ground I don't want to say neutral but it was always on the implication of being with the laboring people and somehow being lesser mm. because of it and also immigrant and whereas you said Anne was born here mm. and that's interesting as well but you look into her parents it's difficult to understand her mother because there's not many details about her mother but of her father we know that he was a black man it's likely that he was from Barbados it's plausible that Anne was either of complete African heritage or was of mixed heritage because this is the problem with this sort of research is that a lot of our understanding of black people depends on racialization and so if people are not racialized we don't necessarily know at least how people viewed their racial identity not necessarily how they viewed themselves but how people saw them and so we know that her father was of African heritage and thus her link to the West Indies and Jekyll's introduction in Ignatius Sancho's letters the biography of his life refers to her as a woman of West Indian heritage and it's often been assumed that she was a migrant because that was the common narrative right that the black women were all migrants and that's what my research as well is trying to really gauge in terms of specificity like how many women were migrants how many women were women of Britain of London and what were the differences there what did that mean being a black woman in London how did that impact identity and 
how much did they sort of connect to any origins from around the world if they were from different places or their family were from different places or their friends were from different places and how did that fit for them in terms of their ideas of race and of culture they had to counter a lot of images and counter a lot of stereotypes and that in itself I imagine would be really hard work in terms of presenting an image of yourself this sort of performative element of living and I suppose as well that's also why the home is such a central point for Ignatius not just in terms of the fact that he was suffering with ill health so he likely would have probably stayed at home more that was almost a safe place a refuge right they didn't have to perform in that place as much in terms of actual interactions but maybe in terms of writing letters because you would present your home in a different way mm. you didn't have to be in your home in any particular way that's how you communicated with the outside world isn't yeah. it so it's hinted at there as well isn't it because you talk about the moments where it drops off because of the mm. fact that the children pass away and there are moments where it doesn't really get talked about mm. so it's yeah. absence is also inherent in the letters yeah which is interesting ignatius very much tap dances on this line of private and public mm. and he's very discerning in terms of what people can know and what they can't and what is reserved for the family and what is personal and what is very emotional and intimate and what people can know and so there are little details about for example kitty falls ill and that's how she unfortunately passes away but he does detail to particular recipients about her illness and tells them oh this is happening and similar with lydia he talks about how a woman from the community does come in to help nurse lydia while she's ill talking about the community nature how they've come together to support the family but when there are deaths there are a few moments moments where Ignatius acknowledges those to recipients or to the people he's writing to and even beyond that there are fewer moments where he acknowledges Anne's experiences and so there's one time where he states that she spent 30 days but one in the same clothes and you can imagine the grief and so we can almost multiply that with every child and so that's almost as well another emphasis of her resilience despite the fact that she suffers a lot of loss she still manages to persevere maintain and grow in different industries and then maintain her family with her and that is a sure sign of fortitude though her heart may be broken she's still keeping those close to her up. and I think that's something to for sure be admired from at least what we can gauge of her I think probably if I knew her even better it'd probably be even more to admire I'm sure yes because there's a modesty in there isn't there yeah. it's about well this is what we do yeah she would have just been conscious that that's her role and she mm. did it to the best of her abilities yeah. but it is interesting that after he died they still progressed and moved forward mm. it wasn't oh we just got to maintain yeah. it feels like they moved on and yeah. actually progressed in a very interesting way together which maybe is tantamount to the family unit maybe is tantamount to her yeah you know whatever that is the kids were still fairly young I mean Mary was the oldest and so she was I think in her 20s when her father dies and so everyone after that is still fairly kind of young she understands that there's work to be done now without the husband the man of the house I suppose there's not as much security but there is I suppose a legacy that he leaves in being the celebrity and so capitalizing on that is their maintenance their their sustenance and so I don't think it was accidental that she ends up in printing and that they themselves continue to print her husband's letters because they know that that's something that will secure them and that at least maintains some popularity for a long time I suppose now even has a resurgence right like we're now looking at them more fervently again I mean Patterson Joseph and his amazing book and his amazing monodrama and all of the materials that produced out of this and the conversations that we're having now because they knew that this was something 
something that was incredibly valuable to them, but also in terms of just representing black people within the context of 18th and 19th century Britain. When there's a world of race theorists and travel journals and all these different people dictating what blackness was, here's Ignatius's letters say something very different. And I think not only just the editor, not only just Anne, but society sort of recognised the place that those letters held and Anne's position within that. And they were right, because like you yeah. say, we're still here talking we're about We're still them. here talking about them. You can see that they understood their position and where mm. they were and, and managing what we would call now the brand. Yeah. I think that's fascinating that that was the pivot that they did mm. and they could sit there, well, hold on a minute, well, well let's, let's, let's do that. Yeah, let's than, keep it going. Yeah, yeah, rather than wait for other people. The one thing I found really baffling about beginning this research and I mean it shouldn't have been baffling because we, I just do women's histories and so women's histories are always marginalized always sort of pushed under or underrepresented or or not focused on or not a priority but when I went through and counted how many references there were to Anne and this is not just in terms of him just mentioning her but also talking about the things that she does her character and her relationship with her children all of these different things there was 117 references in these letters and that was over 77 letters of I think about 158 that's in the the core published ones and there's obviously more outside there. so there may be even more but the fact that there were so many and pulling them together you do get this really interesting quite clear image of Anne actually I suppose if you're looking at it in individual references you don't see much but this is literally what my research is doing trying to pull all of these together and I was really shocked that when I went to see what other people have said there wasn't much it almost made me sad because Ignatius obviously held Anne in such high regard and they had a very intimate relationship that he talks of anyway and at least there's an equality there that we can see that she has a role within the household that she's working and he has a sort of overarching authority that then exceeds into the the public world so within you know the context of gender roles in this period they are very central to each other's lives and so to have one without the other felt so imbalanced this was during the course of a much wider research into a bigger population but I felt like I had to just take a minute and spend some time with Anne because we needed to see both sides we need to see the importance of Anne within the context context of Ignatius's world Hmm. within London and within this image of the black woman in this space because she really nuances these images of black women that firstly is already in historiography but also within the context of my research because we have women who are other middle class women who are heiresses who are owning property or business and then you have a lot of women who are in laboring roles and often aligning with a lot of the roles that that women would have performed more generally like street selling or sex work or in service etc but she sort of sits in this weird place because she occupies a lot of those different realms as a as a middle class woman as a mother as a wife as a woman of london but then the fact that she is able to draw in so many different identities and present a different side in both the level of detail but also in terms of what a woman could be in this space what a woman could be within her family what a woman could be for others especially in a world where the man is gone Mm -hmm. and it sort of highlights as well the role of the widow as well yeah she just links a lot of the commentary a lot of the present historiography on gender she's so relative to all of that but she's missing and like you say a lot of that's to do with the fact that she's mentioned Mm. she's there yeah but it's ignatius that has been the focal point yeah exactly so it's i mean this is why you're doing such a great mm. job and setting I think the tone for other people to come along and do it mm. again it's just a slight shift of perspective yeah. she's always been there always been there no one's just put the time no. in 
And that's things you've been here for centuries, right? Like there's yeah. been these references for centuries, but no one's really, well, I say no one, there's probably a few people who've done a lot of work on it. And that's really exciting to have more people looking at Ignatius, more people looking at Anne and the children and thinking about them in the context of lived experience rather than just sort of being there. But it just felt so unbalanced. Right. Now we're here putting the balance back. Well, we start. We have to start somewhere, right? So, <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, it's good. It's a call to arms to everyone else that's perhaps interested that can can see things in a slightly different way because, you know, it, it took your perspective to then mm. go, hold on a minute, there's loads here. Yeah. We can do this. And I think that once you start looking at things like that mm. and archives in that way, it really does open them up. Mm. And especially if you're talking about critical fabulation and all these amazing practitioners that yeah. you've talked about, I think that then you can start to get really excited about those people that haven't been represented up until now absolutely i think it's definitely we're in a moment where we are engaging with the archive in a completely different way but also that there is so much potential i think a lot of people focus on the silences and the fact that this archive has so many inherent violences but now we've almost sort of tipped over that point and now we're like yes there are these silences. yes we have to navigate them yes we have to be critical and really careful about how we do that but that doesn't mean that these histories have to go unacknowledged anymore and that is a really exciting time to be in because i think there's going to be so much that emerges from it. I mean, we already have like a good exciting wave going on right now but if there's anything that I want from my research or from conversations like this is that people to realize that this is something that can be done it's hard work don't get me wrong but it is something that is entirely possible and actually something that at least for me has been incredibly rewarding yeah for sure call to arms let's go guys <laughs> crack on and, yeah. and we're putting together the toolkit that's yeah, what you're exactly. doing you know you that very much you talk about your methodology mm-hmm. we have today and I think that that's important because then you're going to pass that on and then it's endless yeah get out exactly. there and get your hands yeah, let's go. Yeah. yeah. On that note, tell us about what the plan is for you with this work, with your PhD. You know, where are you going with it? There's several different directions. So the first sense is I'm working on a, a trade book to think about micro histories of black women that speak to a history of womanhood of race and of sort of London so I'm developing that at the moment but theatre at heart and I'm inherently creative so I really want to be able to draw these stories out and really kind of engage with them in really creative ways and so I'm looking to think about them in terms of writing theatre or writing literature to in one way act as a therapy for the questions I can't answer but in another way to really bring these women to life for people to engage with them in that way because it's one thing to read something in a history book but there's something about a visual image that is so powerful and I was literally having this conversation with a few people a couple of days ago that once something is visual once something is captured in your mind that changes people's perception of the world around them I really want people to sort of reimagine the space of London as this inclusive as this diverse space and I suppose rectify the silences inherently, but actually just celebrate that fact as well as acknowledge the deeply troubling past that London has and the roots of colonialism and and slavery that have forged the city that we know. But equally, I want to bring these women to the forefront and say, look, I was living here too, in the same way that I'm living here in 2023. These women were living in 1779 and there were these communities and they were living and they're loving and they were shaped by London and consequently also had that impact on London themselves. 
because that's how people then saw their community with black men and black women in the space as well as various other communities. It's an important image. And it's about seeing possibilities, like you say, and they would have seen the possibilities and they yeah. were trailblazers, but they're there. Yeah. Find them and portray them. Yeah, exactly. And like you say, when people connect or emotionally connect or whatever mm. it is, when you take them on a journey with a story, mm. and yeah. a narrative, that's when it really sort of has an imprint on people, I think. But that's the thing as well, because I think that's the one thing we all resonate with, right, is a story. Like we really, we can understand things. And that's why there's so many morals in story, right? There's so many lessons to be learned in stories because we can understand characters and their thinking when mm. we have those arcs of character. There's something very magical about that. And so if we can shine a light on these women using stories like that to help people comprehend this world in a way that sometimes academic work can't do. And don't get me wrong, I love academic work. It's so powerful to be able to think critically and be able to think in ideological and like take a step back and really analyse the world. But also we are inherently emotional creatures. But I see where our brains in the mm. academic world meet in the middle with perhaps someone that's not in academia mm. who is still connecting with these same stories yeah. and these same people from history. And I think that's the beauty of it. It's finding that middle ground so yeah. that you can have lay people that engage. You give them the tools to think critically too, as much or as little as they want, but at the same time, they're still engaging it. And that's the whole point of critical fabulation, yeah. isn't it? Is that is there's still this foundation yeah. of study and research, but in a package that perhaps is more palatable for people coming from the other end of the spectrum yeah exactly and I think that's really important I think also I'm obviously I'm biased because I come from an entertainment world but you know I think that that's the sweet spot and I think that that's when it gets really exciting oh yeah for sure and to know that this was real right yeah 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 and you know and like you said right at the start about the streets of London basically 18th century London right mm. out there on yeah. your doorstep so the idea that you're going to I've just got goosebumps the idea that you're going to bring these people mm. to life again Mm. so that you can feel their presence yeah. when you're walking down the street. Yeah. I mean, that's great. That's powerful. It is. And that's the thing, because that's basically what I felt throughout this entire PhD. Anytime I walk down a particular street that I know a woman lived on, I'm like, oh, it's real. She's here. Not to feel very good, ghoulish, but it is... Like it's a, it's, yeah, it's an energy about it. And so to be able to translate that to somebody and also as, as well, because I'm obviously very passionate about this and it's trying to communicate that passion by saying, giving a lecture. I mean, I can stand there and be as bubbly as I like, but it may not resonate in the same way. But sometimes if you just see someone and they just give you a powerful speech, this is me, I'm here, mm. that will hit in a way that will never really be in the strict facts. It's about empathy, isn't it? Yeah, about empathy. That human connection, that relatability as well, just being like, I understand where you're coming from. Or I understand in part, anyway. I don't know if we can ever fully resonate. But what happens is we interpret and translate within Mm. our own world and with our own being, and that's okay. Exactly. That's absolutely okay. That's all part of having a critical eye and understanding that I'm going to be biased in my own way because I have my own perceptions and, you know, and I'm who I am. But that's okay because if this person speaks to you... Mm you take that and you run with that exactly that's what I hope to do anyway in terms of a future for this work is definitely thinking about what stories but also how these women would appear in literature maybe in theatre right and exploring that a bit more well, we have some specific questions on that now, then, just to kind of tie us up nicely. But I was just thinking that that visual of them being at the Pleasure Gardens as well and mm. that whole experience. I mean, we see Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens portrayed in TV and film all the time. Mm. It would be nice to have the Ignatius Sanchez family perspective. Yeah, that, that would be good. Every single time I do a podcast, I think of like the TV series, the film. You know, but this you know. is the beautiful thing, right? When you're sort of engaging with lots of different histories, you're like, okay, where are the TV shows? Like, where's the three part drama? Let's go. Right. So, and I know you speak my language. 
which is right and it's what I'm doing for my MA but the way that I will be able to kind of scratch that itch is to do scenes create scenes mm. wherever it may be whether it's in situ that would be amazing but have these people come to life yeah and physically be there for a moment if you know make it ephemeral and yeah. disappear again yeah because they are there yeah. We're just, you know, putting a physical body to it. And that's also quite reflective, of, particularly for black women anyway, of the sources that we have, right? Because we can't always be like, okay, this is her entire story. Mm-hmm. Because we don't know that. And the historian me is almost like, stick as close to the facts as you can. Like, don't jump too far. If you have those moments where you can bring that to life, even just, for example, like a baptism, that moment is quite a pertinent moment. It meant a lot for a lot of black women. And so to visualise that moment, and that will be representative for a lot of the women who we know about because of the source material that we have sometimes particularly in a creative dimension anyway the source material can work to our advantage not necessarily in an academic point of view but in terms of being creative and asking those questions and being able to fulfill them that's definitely where I use literature as my second love is writing fiction in a place where I can't necessarily answer the questions in the academic world okay let's go to literature and be like have these answers 100% yeah. that's what you do at the end of the day obviously Hilary Mantel's on the other side of that line exactly uh, yeah critical fabulation versus mm. historical fiction but that line is very blurry when mm. you've researched the way she did mm. and decided to portray the interiority of a person mm. how could anyone possibly know but what you know is as much research as you can yeah. underpin that mm. and make those decisions about someone's thought patterns based on the world that you know that they lived in yeah exactly that mm. line and you know we we all know that she inspired many people with her work. Why not? When there's those moments where you just go, I can't quite get to this, mm. but I do know enough to be able to say, well, what about this? Yeah. Maybe exactly. they said this and maybe yeah. they did this with this other person at this point. You exactly. Know? And as long as you're transparent about that. Exactly. Okay, so talking about her legacy, we kind of have alluded to it a little bit. We've talked about the fact that she wouldn't have really been conscious of, I'm doing this, I'm going to get praise for being the wife, mother, business owner, but... She definitely would have been thinking at the time about the brand, if you want to call it that, Mm. the Sancho family brand, but also from a perspective of the tone that Sancho had always put forward in his letters, Mm. the public-facing family that had social standing that was definitely something that they needed to make money. Let's talk about the idea that Anne would have had as far as their legacy or his legacy, even if she chose mm. that to be the family legacy, and then maybe in context of what her legacy is now. Then I definitely feel like it was continuing Ignatius's legacy and making sure that, I suppose in a context of a world where people can overwrite you and make their own determinations about who you are, ensuring that people actually knew her husband in the way that he wanted to be betrayed rather than what somebody else could imagine. Because, I mean, there were so many historical commentators who were making very abrupt, stylistic commentary, but he made an image for himself and she was like, I'm going to continue that in a way that, firstly, I suppose, honours him, but in the secondly, would also be the source of maintenance that the family needed because in some of Ignatius's letters he does become very concerned about what happens to his family and in that way his parting gift was this ability to at least for a portion of their life be maintained by his legacy and so she was almost the custodian of that alongside William so she bore that responsibility but in terms of her legacy today at least for me anyway it's a story that can really resonate with a lot of people firstly in that being a mother and the difficult choices that comes with that the difficult responsibilities the weight of of carrying your family and ensuring their security, their maintenance is something that is often a story that goes unrecognised, but is something that is so important nonetheless. In terms of her background as a second generation migrant, it's something that 
a lot of particularly black women and black men of post-Windrush generations who have parents who were Windrush or part of the community can resonate with because it provides this sense of grounding within London and within English and British history. There were people who came over, had children, and they inherently, this was all they knew, and this is something that became their roots. And I think for me anyway, in terms of what I began this project for, in part was due to the fact that there was always this question about my roots and if I have any claim to England or to British identity or anything like that because my parents were from the Caribbean or that because of my race I'm inherently not British. Stories like and not that that needs to be proof because I know I'm British and this is something that can't be taken away by somebody else's commentary but Anne's story proves that this is not something that just began in 1945 but this is something that has been a story for generations and it's a story that's not just impacted black men but it's a story that's impacted black women and black children and it's something that has defined and cultivated London and England for a very long time and it's not something that can ever be taken away but it can definitely be misconstrued. Part of the problem is that Anne was always assumed to be a migrant and so in a similar fashion a lot of black people presently are always told where are you from and that's always a big question firstly for Anne that wasn't a thing it likely was a conversation that she had multiple times but it wasn't something that became a defining feature of how she presented herself or identified or anything like that and that's ultimately what we're trying to present so Anne gives us that example I hope that that's something that will be kind of communicated when people read about her and learn of her life but at least in terms of her legacy for me, that's something that's so important, is having that 18th century link to be like, she was sort of like me. That's something I can hold on to, it's something to treasure. Brilliant, well said. Very cool, little bit of conversation we've been having about um, pop culture and, and mm. representation of Anne. Have there been any de depictions of her on screen? Not that I know of. Okay. It might sort of be that she's like a peripheral character. Mm. It might have been like Sancho was there and then there's like a black woman in the background that's sort mm. of like okay. representing Anne. I mean, the, the most definitive one that I've observed is in Patterson Joseph's new novel, The Secret Diaries of Ignatius Sancho, where he talks about how they came together. And but even in that, it's about Ignatius. And also with that absence of focus on Anne, it's difficult to base a historical creation or in terms of historical fiction of something that doesn't really have that much historical grounding to begin with. I personally love Patterson's book and so I think it's something that he navigates really well in terms of devices to both address their relationship and engage with it but not necessarily state something that is untrue or completely fabricated. Yeah. It's something that's complete is plausible. Yeah. Okay. You have to write the film, basically. I mean <laughs> I You've got a lot to do. I've got there's a lot of work to do. It is a having this creative brain, seeing what medium best fits Anne. A part of me would love to make a film, but a part of me also really wants to see Anne in theatre. I feel like she's someone you need to be in the room with. And she has that presence and character that is something that is that people kind of need to see. and need to recreate be, the shop. Honestly, something like that. And then like you can see like the lighting and how that sort of like adds shadow and like considers her inner thoughts and because also as well like that's sort of how Ignatius presents her a lot of the time is in the house different homes or different spaces that people kind of come to her and that she I mean it's not all of her representations but a core number of them are centralized around the home she doesn't feel like the kind of person that would go out and make a splash but she's like if you come into me I will be warm and welcoming and you'll see me in context of that shop though with mm. people coming and going yeah. the social interaction yeah that could be great even, exactly 
uh, like you say, you could make a play out of that, yeah. for sure. Yeah, for But sure. even if you made a living, immersive experience out yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. And that also sort of like resonates with that, right? Because it's not, she never goes out to mm. get custom. They come to her. That's how she draws them into her world. Just having that intimacy honours the way that she probably would have lived her life. And yes, I just think, I think something quite magical about mm, theatre. Okay. So. Imagine the conversations as well that you could have, you know, mother and son. Yeah, children passing away and have Ignatius's letter writing within that mm. but then him dying and with that central point being honestly the shop, the home yeah. And the shop. Yeah. yeah because also that's not a very common representation of black people in the 18th century as always like of service but not being proprietors mm. having that royalty in there you've got aristocrats you've got this is a thing yeah really interesting interactions that you yeah. portray exactly but it, it adds those different dimensions to black life in 18th century mm. in a visual way as well. That's so important. I mean, if someone goes and makes a film, I would be very excited to see it. And But they need the, your work to do that. I mean, so yeah, I'd be happy to just drop me an email. So yeah. You're going to be, have to be part of it one way or another. Yeah, over. I'd love to see it in theatre for sure. And there, front seats. Yeah. Yes, please. Or immersive. Wouldn't you want to go into that I shop? would love to go in that shop. have a chat with her. Yeah. Always happens. I, I get podcast uh, guests in and my list to, to do things goes yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so do you have a favourite Anne Sancho anecdote or fact that you could share with us, perhaps? I think my favourite is just the fact how many times she's referenced. 117 times. Yeah, and let's just have yeah. a moment for that, for how important she is. Like, Ignatius clearly felt a lot about her. And it also in a context of a world where George the Fourth barely even acknowledges wife, couldn't have her at the coronation. And this is a world where... That's Caroline yeah. Brunswick that you mentioned Yeah, exactly, earlier. right? Yes. So this is a world where a wife could be so easily disregarded and so many middling upper-class marriages were either business transactions or deeply unhappy. But to have representation where Ignatius is like, I love my wife. And let lots of people know. He refers to he is her barometer and she is his. He describes her as the best of women or the chief felicitator of my happiness. I mean, obviously, I know he's coming at this from a very performative angle. He's coming at this from a very literary angle. And so he's going to come up with very imaginative ways to describe his love. That's got to come from somewhere, right? Absolutely. Exactly. So, because there's also very imaginative ways to describe someone you don't like. Exactly, right? <laughs> yes. Or just in a context where you define what is spoken about and what is not, you could just be like, yeah, I'm not mentioning yeah, today. Just, yeah, so, nothing nice to say. Exactly. Yeah. And so the fact that he does, and so often... She meant something to him, and that's Lovely. really beautiful. It's a love story, too, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just always nice to appreciate, I suppose, from afar, anyway. So this one really is a light-height question. Mm. You don't have to answer it, but I feel like you probably have a great answer for this. If Anne Sanchez were a superhero, what would her superpower be? I don't know if I can classify this as a superhero, but this is the immediate thought that came to mind. You know in Kanto, the Disney animation that came out 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. um, by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and there's a character in it Mirabel is the main character who doesn't have a power but she has an older sister Luisa who is incredibly strong and like almost like bulletproof mm-hmm. that immediately came to mind because <laughs> I was like I feel like even in the song there's a song surface pressure where she's like I'm the strong one I can handle anything that feels like Anne but inherently also I imagine she probably felt similar pressure where she's like I've got to do it like there's nothing I can't not handle because it would cost too much she couldn't have a day off she couldn't have a day off mm. and so there's a scene in the film where Louisa just lifts up a church I feel like Anne would be that person to like lift up the house or lift or up the, the whole shop. family yeah, yeah everyone's yeah, yeah. up there handling all of it 
and she's almost expected to handle all of it. I imagine it would be nice to think that, I don't know, Anne went on a holiday somewhere or had like a, a little room upstairs and she's just like, this is my reading room, don't come in, let me have a break. I don't know if that technically counts as a superhero. 100% but... counts and I think it's a brilliant visual and I have seen the film. It's a cap- capable woman. Yeah. I understand that feeling of you can't stop. You can't stop, And yeah. I think also if you've had that much loss in your life, mm. you can go one way or the other, can't mm. you? You kind of put a, a fuel yeah you a rocket up you or you give up yeah and i feel like that was her way of keeping on keeping on yeah exactly and i suppose not losing sight of everything because i think there's this thing she's very aware that it wasn't just her i'm giving her a round of applause oh i'm every day i'm like and you're amazing (laughs) but there you go that's her legacy isn't it it's firing you to see that strength was burst through the pages yeah even when she's in a side yeah it's still there exactly to you it's something to give hope as well that you know like sometimes the side characters are also main characters and it's like well they are if you decide there you are exactly this is true but even in the context of how they were written we can see them differently and i suppose that's what a lot of films and stuff are doing now right like with the new dracula film is like the focusing on the what's it, I can't remember his name but the um the, yeah the, the, the guy the one we need to know about obviously <laughs> yeah exactly I feel that's quite apt isn't it that he's a side character and I can't remember his name but we but, will uh, after we've seen the film once we have seen the film I think you're completely right and I think that like we said earlier when she start tilting the, the view and going mm. hold on a minute if you turn it around and look mm. at it from this perspective what do you get that's sort of what I've tried to do with this and hopefully we'll do some more in different ways well, this is my round of applause for you as well. oh thank you so, so much this, this <laughs> yeah keep cracking on I think it's very inspiring and hopefully it's the Anne Sancho effect you're now yeah. going to inspire a whole other generation of people to get out there and do the same thing I mean I hope so I mean this is a field that requires many minds so if anyone feels like they're up for the challenge I would heartily recommend it do it and give us your ideas and send them in to me and we can get you yeah. cast. brilliant thank you Montez yeah. thank you so much for being here through the gates of Heron City and bringing such an interesting character to life thank you so much for having me 